Hello and welcome to this special episode of Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. McDonald. In this episode I'll be discussing Descartes' second meditation and a discussion of a criticism of the second meditation by Marin Marsan, as well as a wee discussion of Descartes' reply to Marsan's criticism. So let's get started into the second meditation. Meditation 2 Concerning the nature of the human mind that is better known than the body. Yesterday's meditation has thrown me into such doubts that I could no longer ignore them, yet I fail to see how they are to be resolved. It is as if I had suddenly fallen into a deep whirlpool. I am so tossed about that I can neither touch bottom with my foot nor swim up to the top. Nevertheless, I will work my way up and will once again attempt the same path I entered upon yesterday. I will accomplish this by putting aside everything that admits of the least doubt, as if I had discovered it to be completely false. I will stay on this course until I know something certain, or, if nothing else, until I at least know for certain that nothing is certain. Archimedes sought but one firm and immovable point in order to move the entire earth from one place to another. Just so, great things are to be hoped for if I succeed in finding just one thing, however slight, that is certain and unshaken. Therefore, I suppose that everything I see is false. I believe that none of what my deceitful memory represents ever existed. I have no senses whatsoever. Body, shape, extension, movement and place are all chimeras. What then will be true? Perhaps just a single fact that nothing is certain. But how do I know there is not something else over and above all those things that I have just reviewed, concerning which there is not even the slightest occasion for doubt? Is there not some god, or by whatever name I might call him, who instills these very thoughts in me? But why would I think that, since I myself could perhaps be the author of these thoughts? Am I not, then, at least something, but I have already denied that I have any senses and any body? Still I hesitate, for what follows from this? Am I so tied to a body and to the senses that I cannot exist without them? But I have persuaded myself that there is absolutely nothing in the world, no sky, no earth, no minds, no bodies. Is it then the case that I too do not exist? But doubtless I did exist if I persuaded myself of something. But there is some deceiver or other who is supremely powerful and supremely sly and who is always deliberately deceiving me. Then, too, there is no doubt that I exist, if he is deceiving me, and then let him do his best at deception. He will never bring it about that I am nothing, so long as I think that I am something. Thus, after everything has been most carefully weighed, it must finally be established that this announcement, I am, I exist, is necessarily true every time I utter it or conceive it in my mind. But I do not yet understand sufficiently what I am, I, who now necessarily exist. And so, from this point on, I must be careful lest I unwittingly mistake something else for myself, and thus err in that very item of knowledge that I claim to be the most certain and evident of all. Thus I will meditate once more on what I once believed myself to be, prior to embarking upon these thoughts. For this reason, then, I will set aside whatever can be weakened, even to the slightest degree, by arguments brought forward, so that eventually all that remains is precisely nothing but what is certain and unshaken. Descartes begins meditation too, then, with a nice, brief, quick summary of meditation one and what exactly we've gotten out of meditation one. So, to briefly summarize and quickly go back over that, 
What's established then in meditation one is that Descartes wants to try and establish an absolutely certain and solid foundation for our knowledge and then goes on a quest to go and find that foundation. Then he starts with our experiential knowledge and things that we can perceive and sense in the world and he says well actually that's not a great basis to start with. Why is that the case? Because these things can be called into question. We make mistakes in our experiential knowledge. Knowledge changes over time. When we go to then analyze things as well, we can't be absolutely certain at all given times about our experiential knowledge. Push that even further, we went into the dream argument. There is no difference between dream and reality. But we can then say, well, there was certain things we could be certain about that I have a body, I have a shape and so on. I have arms and that I'm certainly sitting here in the first place having these thoughts. So despite all these problems that's eked out between realities and dreams in meditation one, there was already starting to be that basis to say, well, maybe there is some things that are going to be solid foundation then following on from that pushed into the evil deceiver that little rascal of a character in which it's a personification of course of absolute doubt and skepticism and it's that little rascal the evil deceiver that's going to continually challenge and call into question everything that can be established even our mathematical truths how can you be certain of that and so going into meditation two, he says what we're left with is this big massive whirlpool that we're in because we have hardly anything to basically grasp on. So it's essentially Descartes is in like a little ship caught in the midst of this torrent and whirlpool being tossed around at sea. And like Archimedes, again, we have a nice relation back into mathematics coming in to say, well, he saw that immovable point. And so therefore, I'm going to go and try to find that immovable point as well. And then as well, we have that whole relation into the idea of God as well coming in that was also talked about in meditation one. Well, if God is good, then surely he wouldn't allow me to be deceived, right? And so Descartes doesn't jump the gun on that question as well. He says, well, we have to first establish what God is. How do I arrive at knowledge of what God is? What is God? And maybe the very idea of God that's been told to me is in fact wrong. Maybe I'm be being deceived here by the very idea of what God is. And that's also coming back in, in our little quick summary of meditation one at the start of meditation two as well that evil deceiver can be precisely the thing that calls into question even our idea of what god is and then very interestingly again we say well even though we're in a whirlpool there's a certain thing that the evil deceiver can't call into question whatsoever we have that point of stability here and it's sort of following on back from that dream argument as well to say well the thing that we can be certain of is the fact that i am precisely writing down these thoughts on a piece of paper and necessarily from all that i have to exist in some capacity in order for that to take place but i've not clearly stated what the i is is it in relation to the body is it in relation to the mind what exactly is the thing that guarantees my own sense of self what is the thing that secures my idea of me and my own personal identity over time. What is that? And so it's an incredibly profound and deep question that we have there at the end of paragraph two. What exactly am I? And how can I be sure of this in an absolutely certain concrete basis again? for Descartes because you're never going to have established anything that can be called into question 
we need this absolute certain basis and so this is what he's got to then go and investigate what exactly am i so continuing on then what then did i formerly think i was a man of course but what is a man might i not say a rational animal no because then i would have to inquire what animal and rational mean and thus from one question i would slide into many more difficult ones nor do i have enough free time that i'd want to waste it on the subtleties of this sort instead permit me here to focus here on what came spontaneously and naturally into my thinking whenever i pondered what i was now it occurred to me first that i had a face hands arms and this entire mechanism of my bodily members the very same as are discerned in a corpse and which i referred to by name body it next occurred to me that i took in food that i walked about and that i sensed and thought various things these actions i used to attribute to the soul but as to what this soul might be i neither did not think about it or else i imagined it as a rarefied i know not what like a wind or a fire or ether which had been infused into my coarser parts but as to the body i was not in any doubt on the contrary i was under the impression that i knew its nature distinctly were i perhaps tempted to describe this nature such as i conceived it in my mind i would have described it thus by body i understand all that is capable of being bounded by some shape or being enclosed in a place and of filling up a space in such a way as to exclude any other body from it of being perceived by touch sight hearing taste or smell of being moved in several ways not of course by itself but by whatever else impinges upon it for it was my view that the power of self-motion and likewise of sensing or of thinking in no way belonged to the nature of the body indeed i used rather to marvel at such faculties were to be found in certain bodies but now what am i when i suppose that there is some supremely powerful and if i may be permitted to say so malicious deceiver who deliberately tries to fool me in any way he can can i not affirm that i at least possess a small measure of all those things which i have already said to belong to the nature of the body i can focus my attention on them i could think about them i can review them again but nothing comes to mind i am tired of repeating this to no purpose but what about those things i ascribe to the soul what about being nourished or moving about since now i do not have a body these are surely nothing but fictions what about sensing surely this too does not take place without a body and i seem to have sensed in my dreams many things that i later realized i did not sense what about thinking here i make my discovery thought exists it alone cannot be separated from me i am i exist that is certain but for how long for as long as i am thinking for perhaps it would also come to pass that if i were to cease all thinking i would then utterly cease to exist at this time i admit nothing that is not necessarily true i am therefore precisely nothing but a thinking thing that is a mind or intellect or understanding or reason words of whose meaning i was previously ignorant yet i am a true thing and i am truly existing but what kind of thing i have said it already a thinking thing what else am i i will set my imagination in motion i am not that concentration of members we call the human body neither am i even some subtle air infused into these members nor wind nor fire nor vapor nor breath nor anything i have devised for myself for i have supposed these things to be nothing the assumption still stands yet nevertheless i am something but 
Is it perhaps the case that these very things which I take to be nothing, because they are unknown to me, nevertheless are in fact no different from that me that I know? This I do not know, and I will not crawl about it now. I can make a judgment only about the things that are known to me. I know that I exist. I ask now, who is this I whom I know? Most certainly, in the strictest sense, the knowledge of this I does not depend upon things whose existence I do not yet know. Therefore, it is not dependent upon any of those things that I simulate in my imagination. But this word simulate warns me of my error, for I would indeed be simulating were I to imagine that I was something, because imagining is merely the contemplation of the shape or image of a corporeal thing. But I now know with certainty that I am, and also that all these images, and generally everything belonging to the nature of the body, could turn out to be nothing but dreams. Once I realized this, I would seem to be speaking no less foolishly were I to say I will use my imagination in order to recognize more distinctly who I am, than were I to say now I surely am awake, I see something true, but since I do not yet see it clearly enough, I will deliberately fall asleep so that my dreams might represent it to me more truly and more clearly. Thus I realize that none of what I can grasp by means of the imagination pertains to this knowledge that I have of myself. Moreover, I realize I must be most diligent about withdrawing my mind from these things so I can perceive its nature as distinctly as possible. But what then am I? A thing that thinks. What is that? A thing that doubts, understands, affirms, denies, wills, refuses, and also imagines and senses. Indeed, it is no small matter if all of these things belong to me. But why should they not belong to me? Is it not the very same I who now doubts almost everything, who nevertheless understands something, who affirms that this one thing is true, who denies other things, who desires to know more, who wishes not to be deceived, who imagines many, even against my will, who also notes many things which appear to come from the senses. What is there in all of this that is not every bit as true as the fact that I exist? Even if I am always asleep, or even if my creator makes every effort to mislead me, which of these things is distinct from my thought? Which of them can be said to be separate from myself? For it is so obvious that it is I who doubt, I who understand, and I who will, that there is nothing by which it could be explained more clearly. But it is indeed also the same I who imagines, for although perhaps, as I supposed before, absolutely nothing that I imagined is true. Still, the very power of imagining really does exist and constitutes a part of my thought. Finally, it is the same I who senses, or who is cognizant of bodily things, as if through the senses. For example, I now see a light, I hear a noise, I feel heat. These things are false, since I am asleep. Yet I certainly do seem to see, hear, and feel warmth. This cannot be false. Properly speaking, this is what in me is called sensing, but this, precisely so taken, is nothing other than thinking. From these considerations, I'm beginning to know a little better what I am, but it still seems, and I cannot resist believing, that corporeal things whose images are formed by thought, and which the senses themselves examine, are much more distinctly known than this mysterious I which does not fall within the imagination. And yet it would be strange indeed were I to grasp the very things I consider to be doubtful, unknown and foreign to me, more distinctly than what is true, what is known, than, in short, myself. But I see what is happening. My mind loves to wander and does not yet permit itself to be restricted within the confines of truth. So be it then. 
let us just this once allow it completely free reign so that a little while later, when this time comes to pull in the reins, my mind may be more readily permit itself to be controlled. So then moving on to the next part of the discussion, Descartes starts off by discussing the certain conceptual ideas about what makes up us as individuals. So our conceptual ideas such as gender, such as male in his case, and also that of a rational animal. But then he cuts the conversation off quite rightly so as well because that's not the aim of course is to then go into a conceptual discussion of different things because like what you said if you do that then you just go into continually having to explain one thing after another and after another and you just end up further and further away from what you were originally intended in the first place which is to more arrive at a simple basic understanding of what he is and going back into it then he then moves from that conceptual discussion into saying well in meditation one i was able to then establish certain certainties about my own body that i did have a body and it was sitting at the desk next to the fire in his little sleeping gown with little hat on maybe a little pipe and so on having a nice think about things in a nice deep philosophical way and so as he says the certain things bodily members and so forth that he took to be true such as his face hands and arms then there's a problem when we try to then say i have an arms body because the problem is these qualities are also shared with that of a corpse as he says so what exactly is the thing that is able to be distinguished between a living individual and that of a dead one we don't have anything concrete there. And then he has a very brief discussion of the soul as well. But very interestingly, he doesn't take it to be an immediate given that the soul exists. Because why would you? For Descartes, he's not established any certainty or any proof that the soul exists at this point. And as he says, because we can't sense it in any given way, then the soul is it's a metaphysical idea we have this sort of disconnect with it because we have this whole much stronger connection as he says with everything that we can experience in the world because we can precisely see it and touch it and if we can see it and touch it then we know that it exists in some given way to us and then comes in that evil deceiver again calling into question his ideas and so when the evil deceiver then does come back in, what it then allows it even in stronger sense is to push those certainties that he tried to reach again and completely wipe them under the carpet. They're not strong enough, basically, as an example, to uphold itself. And so when you talk about your own body, one of the other problems as well is the fact that it changes over time. And of course, that's one of the great big paranoia and selling points of beauty products. Think of the wrinkles, use our products, this de-wrinkling cream at £10 or how much ever it would be in your currency equivalent as well in order to then try and stop all the process of age and wrinkles and so on. But for Descartes, it's the whole problem of, well, if a thing changes in our experience, how can we say with hand on heart that it's the same object over time? What makes it the same? Because within our experiential knowledge, if we look at a tree, for example, then that is in a constant state of continual decay. And so you could say, well, is it at this point? Or is it this point? Because it's going to have changed. What is the thing that guarantees that the tree is going to always be the same? And therefore we run into the problems with our sensory experience because nothing ever stays the same because everything's always in this sense of continual flux and continual change all the time. And so it follows on back from uh, meditation one there as well. You can't trust your senses or experiential knowledge because of that flux and change that occurs all the time 
and then it builds up to those same points about the soul again. I don't have any experiential relation into the soul, so how do you know this soul exists? And we've not even established what that is. And then we get into the the meat and the bones of exactly what it is that he is. And of course, that is a thinking thing. And so from all that, we can say, well, what Descartes ultimately done then is we finally reached the absolute certainty point here of saying, I am a thinking thing. And it's so easy as an example to just understand how does Descartes arrive at precisely this idea of the thinking thing. Because we can close our eyes, and I would encourage everyone to do so, of course in a safe location to do so, and then completely blank out absolutely everything around you completely. And so literally you're in a complete darkness all around you. There's nothing else whatsoever. You're just literally comfortable either standing there or sitting there and literally everything else is completely blank all around you. And of course, pretending that you're actually not listening to me and you're just sat there with your own thoughts, having a good think that Descartes is as well whilst he's writing all this down. And of course, what's so fantastic is this is where we are at the end of meditation one. We're precisely sat there in a complete blank space with nothing else around us whatsoever. And it's just us and our thought. What can you be certain of? Precisely that you are thinking. Even if there is nothing else around you whatsoever, even if everything is a complete blank space, complete darkness, there is one thing you can be certain of that you precisely are thinking. And it's so simple and easy and that's exactly how Descartes gets at the idea of a thinking thing. What am I? A thinking thing. A thing that thinks. And of course the famous saying, I think therefore I am. And of course he then goes in to describe this whole process of thinking. What is thinking? It's a then a collection of thought processes. What are these thought processes that happens? He gives some examples, of course. A thing that doubts, understands, affirms, denies, wills, refuses, and that also imagines and senses. All these thought processes occur within him. All these dependent upon his thought cannot take place without it. And so this can't be called into a question whatsoever because, as he says, even if he tries to imagine himself in the given situation, even imagination itself requires his own thought process. So we've reached that point in which we have beaten the evil deceiver at this given point because we can say with absolute concrete certainty, we are a thinking thing. And nothing can take that away from us whatsoever. We are this collection of thought processes. And then he rounds off this little part of the discussion as well, saying, doesn't this seem strange? And it is strange as well, because like he says, we immediately have an engagement and relationship with our experiential world and our senses. And then suddenly to say, what actually am I is not anything that I can sense, but rather a product of my mind and thought processes. Why is that the case? Why do I somehow know myself better through this I and a thinking process rather than the world? And so then we move on to the Randonoff discussion for meditation too and building upon this whole idea of the mind and its importance and how we understand the world. Let us consider those things which are commonly believed to be the most distinctly grasped of all, namely the bodies we touch and see. Not bodies in general, mind you, for these general perceptions are apt to be somewhat more confused, but one body in particular. Let us take, for instance, this piece of wax has been quite recently removed from the honeycomb. 
it has not yet lost all the honey flavour. It retains some of the scent of the flowers from which it is collected. Its colour, shape and size are manifest. It is hard and cold. It is easy to touch. If you rap on it with your knuckle, it will admit a sound. In short, everything is present in it that appears needed to enable a body to be known as distinctly as possible. But notice that, as I am speaking, I am bringing it close to the fire. The remaining traces of the honey flavour are disappearing. The scent is vanishing. The colour is changing. The original shape is disappearing. Its size is increasing. It's becoming liquid and hot. You can hardly touch it. And now when you rap on it, it no longer emits any sound. Does the same wax still remain? I must confess that it does. No one denies it. No one thinks otherwise. So, what was there in the wax that was so distinctly grasped? Certainly, none of the aspects that are reached by means of the senses, for whatever came under the senses of taste, smell, sight, touch or hearing has now changed and yet the wax remains perhaps the wax was what i now think it is namely that the wax itself never really was the sweetness of the honey nor the fragrance of the flowers nor the whiteness nor the shape nor the sound but instead was a body that a short time ago manifested itself to me in these ways and now does so in other ways but just what precisely is this thing that I thus imagine? Let us focus our attention on this and see what remains after we have removed everything that does not belong to the wax. Only that it is something extended, flexible and mutable. But what is it to be flexible and mutable? Is it what my imagination shows it to be? Namely, that this piece of wax can change from a round to a square shape or from the latter to a triangular shape? Not at all, for I grasp that the wax is capable of innumerable changes of this sort. Even though I am incapable of running through these innumerable changes by using my imagination, therefore this insight is not achieved by the faculty of imagination. What is it to be extended? Is this thing's extension also unknown? For it becomes greater in wax, what is beginning to melt greater in boiling wax, and greater still as the heat is increased. I would not judge correctly what the wax is if I did not believe that it takes on an even greater variety of dimensions than I could ever grasp with the imagination. It remains then for me to concede that I do not grasp what the wax is through the imagination, rather I perceive it through the mind alone. The point I'm making refers to this particular piece of wax. For the case of wax in general is clearer still. But what is this piece of wax which is perceived only by the mind? Surely it is the same piece of wax that I see, touch and imagine. In short, it is the same piece of wax I took it to be from the very beginning. But I need to realise that the perception of the wax is neither a seeing, nor a touching, nor an imagining, nor has it ever been. Even though it had previously seemed so, Rather, it is an inspection on the part of the mind alone. This inspection can be imperfect and confused, as it was before, or clear and distinct, as it is now, depending on how closely I pay attention to the things in which the piece of wax consists. But meanwhile, I marvel at how prone my mind is to errors. For although I am considering these things within myself silently and without words, Nevertheless, I seize upon words themselves and am nearly deceived by the ways in which people commonly speak. For we say that we see the wax itself if it is present, and not that we judge it to be present from its colour or shape. Whence I might conclude straight away that I know the wax through the vision had by the eye, and not through an inspection on the part of the mind alone. But then, where I perchance look out of my window and observe men crossing the square, I would ordinarily say that I see men themselves, just as I say I see the wax. But what do I see aside from hats and clothes, which could conceal automata? Yet I judge them to be men. Thus what I thought I had seen with my eyes, I actually grasp solely with the faculty of my judgment, which is in my mind. And so then we go into the wax example in meditation too. 
It's such a fantastic discussion of the wax as well. So the wax example then. We have Descartes take the piece of wax and then melt the piece of wax. And from all that we start directly with our experiential knowledge and knowledge from our senses. What do we have? On the one hand we have a solid piece of wax and then it has all its attributes to that of course. It has a nice little honey flavor to it. It makes sound when you wrap on it with your knuckle and so on. But then you melt the wax. What happens? It goes from solid to liquid and no longer has the flavor anymore. And there's no sound anymore. What does all this mean on a deeper level is precisely the problem with our experiential knowledge again that things always change over time in our experience, be it through in the grand sense of things through seasons, like with the previous tree example, or just on the whole microscopic level of continually changing. And it's that whole problem of, well, how do we know it's the same piece of wax? Not from our senses, because from our senses and our experience, it ultimately tells us it's two completely distinct things. That is to say, on the one hand, it's solid, and then on the next, when you melt it, it becomes liquid. Two completely different things, but it's not two completely different things. What does remain the same about it? What is the thing that's able to grasp that it's the same over time is not our experiential knowledge, but our mind. It's our mind that then has the coherence between the two. And then he says, well, is it something from our imagination, from our faculty, basically, in our mind? No, because from our imagination, it's capable of going through innumerable changes again. It doesn't become something concrete, ultimately. And so when we get to something concrete, it's ultimately the mind itself that's able to grasp it over time as exactly the same object. And that's the whole point, is that the mind itself no longer recognizes it is a seeing or a touching nor an imagining, nor has it ever been. It's only and rather an inspection on part of the mind alone. And of course, we can make imperfect and confused judgments as before when going through our senses, but when now looking at it with our mind, we can then see there's a consistent whole that then appears to how we perceive the wax. So isn't that interesting in terms of our own judgment for Descartes here? He says, why do we lead into errors? Because we focus too much upon our experiential knowledge. And what does our experiential knowledge do? Can deceive us, ultimately lead us astray, why is that the case? Because it always changes. And so if you say one thing at one time, it can change at another time, just like the wax itself. That's how knowledge is going to work from the senses as well. If you try to say knowledge is something solely that we can experience and should be from the senses, then you're just going to end up with this big mass and continual flux all the time. Yeah, if you go with Descartes, he's saying, if you go with the mind, then suddenly we have a consistent whole that appears within all those changes that goes on. It can notice all the consistency. A universal idea starts to then emerge about what the wax is and what is some of those qualities that always remain the same over time, as he says, is that it's something extended, that is an object existing in the world, flexible, you can bend it, you can twist it, and it's mutable, which is a quality that is liable to change. And so if you take those three qualities about it, suddenly we arrive at a very concrete thing about what wax is. It's extended, flexible, mutable. How exactly do we arrive at such concrete categories that we can always apply to wax? through our mind, through our reflection, not through our experience.
And so it's an absolutely fantastic example here because Descartes is then twisted everything around by this point to say, well, how we think we initially arrive at knowledge in the world is through our senses. So he ultimately starts with what everybody thinks they know as knowledge directly with everything we can sense, touch, taste, hear, see, then calls all that into question. And by this point, he says, how do we start to move away from being deceived all the time? How can we start to challenge the evil deceiver that will call any sense of certainty into doubt through the mind, not through the senses? And so therefore, how we're going to start to move is all this emphasis upon the mind and away from emphasis upon our experiential knowledge. And so then he starts to interestingly take the wax and then move it to a discussion of other people in the world to say, well, if I look out my window, then I can suddenly see other people walking around. How do I know they exist? And that's a big question, of course, that pops up in meditation too. How does Descartes know other people exist? How can we be sure of other people's existence? And the big word for this problem is solipsism. S-O-L-I-P-S-M is the posh way of putting it. And it's the problem of the existence of other minds. Descartes has got himself into that problem. I can be sure I exist because I know I'm a thinking thing. But I don't know that other people exist because I don't know that they think. So it's an interesting problem in meditation too that's popped up. And it's one that of course he's going to have to resolve as a problem. So continuing on then. But a person who seeks to know more than the common crowd ought to be ashamed of himself for looking for doubt in common ways of speaking. Let us go forward, inquiring on when it was that I perceived more perfectly and evidently what the piece of wax was. Was it when I first saw it and believed I knew it by the external sense, or at least by the so-called common sense, that is the power of imagination? Or do I have more perfect knowledge now when I have diligently examined both what the wax is and how it is known? Surely it is absurd to be in doubt about this matter, for whatever was there in my initial perception that was distinct, what was there that any animal seemed incapable of possessing? But indeed, when I distinguished the wax from its external forms, as if stripping it of its clothing and looking at the wax in its nakedness, then, even though there can be still an error in my judgment, nevertheless, I cannot perceive it thus without a human mind. But what am I to say about this mind, that is, about myself? For, as yet, I admit nothing else to be in me over and above the mind. What, I ask, am I who seem to perceive this wax so distinctly? Do I not know myself not only more truly, with greater certainty, but also much more distinctly and evidently? For if I judge that the wax exists from the fact that I see it, certainly from the same fact that I see the wax, it follows much more evidently that I myself exist. For I could happen that what I see is not truly wax. It could happen that I have no eyes which to see anything. But it is utterly impossible that while I see or think I see, I do not now distinguish these two. I who think I'm not something. Likewise, if I judge that the wax exists from the fact that I touch it, the same outcome will again obtain, namely that I exist. If I judge that the wax exists from the fact that I imagine it, or any other reason plainly, the same thing follows. But what I note regarding the wax applies to everything else that is external to me. Furthermore, if my perception of the wax seemed more distinct after it became known to me, not on account of sight or touch, but on account of many reasons, one has to admit how much more distinctly I am now known to myself. For there is not a single consideration that can aid in my perception of the wax or of any other body that fails to make even more manifest the nature of my mind. But there are still so many other things in the mind itself 
on the basis on which my knowledge of it can be rendered more distinctly, that it hardly seems worth enumerating those things which emanate from it to the body. But lo and behold, I have returned on my own to where I wanted to be. For, since I now know that even bodies are not properly speaking perceived by the senses, or by the faculty of imagination, but by the intellect alone, and they are not perceived through their being touched or seen, but only through their being understood, I manifestly know that nothing can be perceived more easily and more evidently than my own mind. But since the tendency to hang on to long-held beliefs cannot be put aside so quickly, I want to stop here so that by the length of my meditation this new knowledge may be more deeply impressed upon my memory. And so just Descartes nicely wrapping up the meditation and sort of summing up everything that he's managed to accomplish in the meditation in that section as well, starting off from our experiential knowledge, arriving at precisely the idea of a thinking thing, what is the thinking thing, a collection of thought processes, and then the wax example itself being such a fantastic example into how do we know things better with our mind than through our senses, because our experiential knowledge itself is in continual flux. We can't do it through the imagination either, because then we'll go into a continually just imagining different bits and bobs and so on to it, or just innumerable different ways in which it can work and function. Only the mind itself alone can precisely get towards the absolute concrete foundation. And from all that, we send because we have reached this foundation that the mind itself alone can perceive things that are universal and unchanging, just like the fact that the wax is therefore extended, flexible, immutable. We can therefore move upon that basis to then build upon that in the next meditation. And so a great objection or criticism to look at for meditation too is from Marin Marsan who is a polymath or a person of wide knowledge or learning and he's also a big man of letters as well and knew and interacted with quite a few famous people at the time sending letters back and forth as you do and so this is Marsan's criticism for meditation too. First of all, you will recall that it surely was not actually and truly, but merely a contrivance of the mind that you rejected as best as you could the images of all bodies, so that you might conclude that you were merely a thinking thing, lest perhaps you believe later on that you could conclude that you were really nothing but a mind or a thought or a thinking thing. We draw your attention to this only in connection with the first two meditations, in which you clearly show that it is certain that at least you, who are thinking, exist. But let us pause here for a little while. Up until now, you acknowledge that you are a thinking thing, but you do not know what this thing is that thinks. But what if it were a body that by its various movements and encounters produces what we call thought. For although you think you've rejected everybody, you could have been mistaken in this, since you hardly rejected yourself, who may be a body. For how do you not demonstrate that a body cannot think? Or that corporeal motions are not thought itself, but the entire system of your body, which you believe you have rejected, or some part of it, for example, those parts which make up the brain can come together to form those motions which we call thoughts. I am, you say, a thinking thing, but are you a thing that knows if you are a corporeal motion or a body that is being moved? So absolutely fantastic criticism as well from Mersan. And to say, well, Descartes, hold on a tick. You've discussed the objects in the world you've discussed wax and so on, but wait a minute, what about your own body? You've not actually thought on a more deeper level about your own body here, because surely we can say, well, isn't the body a thinking thing? 
and you've just solely talked about the mind, and you've forgotten all about the importance of the body here. Because surely the way in which the body moves and so forth is all through a collection of the body's own collection of processes and thinking and so on. So it's absolutely fantastic as a criticism because it highlights the problems that Descartes got himself into with such a focus upon the mind itself over the senses and the body, you could say, as well as it has a really lovely connection into 20th century phenomenology and the philosophy of Merleau-Ponty, in which Merleau-Ponty's philosophy in the 20th century emphasizes and argues for precisely all that importance about the body is a thinking thing and why is that the case because prior to all that you have Hegel in the German romantic period and German idealism and so forth that placed so much emphasis upon the mind along comes Nietzsche of course who emphasizes the body Merleau-Ponty is very inspired by Nietzsche and then writes an absolutely amazing philosophy called phenomenology of perception all emphasizing the ways in which the body think and a great example of that of course is muscle memory in which we then for have let's say the example of which we learn a musical instrument and then we go from muscle memory to then play all the different chords and scales and so on but what Merleau-Ponty would say there as well is you forget about all the pain and struggle and suffering of course in a very productive way for yourself because you're trying to learn how to play the instrument about how uncomfortable it is to go into those finger positions, how you have to play the scales over and over again, and how your fingers themselves have to get comfortable. All those little things that we take for granted and usually overlook, incredibly important things when we then go to learn and understand things without all those little things we do with our body that actually would take away from just how we'd understand things as a whole. As well as another example could be, let's say, when you're learning to drive and then the awkwardness of trying to use your hands to not only go on a steering wheel, but then also use the gear stick and then trying to use your feet to change gears, use the brakes, use the accelerator all at the same time is, of course, trying to look where you're going. And as all that awkwardness in learning to drive again would be another fantastic example there of the body as a thinking thing and needing to therefore learn all the different important parts and not just solely our mind. And of course, that's the whole point about a driving theory test as well, is that it's not all just on the theory side of things. You also got to go out there and have a good old practice with your body in the car and driving around, getting used to it. So this, of course, adds on very nicely to Mersan's criticism about what about the body as a thinking thing? And then we have Descartes' reply to this, of course, and it's quite a chunky response, but let's go to the little heart of exactly what he has to say. You here ask how I can demonstrate that a body cannot think. Please forgive me if I answer that I have not yet provided a place for this question to arise since I first dealt with it in the sixth meditation, where I said, my ability my ability clearly and distinctly to understand one thing without another suffices to make me certain that the one thing is different from the other, and so on. And a little further, although I have a body that is very closely joined to me, nevertheless, because on the one hand, I have a very clear and distinct idea of myself insofar as I am merely a thinking thing and not an extended thing, and because on the other hand, I have a distinct idea of a body insofar it is merely an extended thing and not a thinking thing, it is certain that I, that is a mind, am really distinct from my body and can exist without it. To this one readily adds, whatever is capable of thinking is a mind, or is called a mind, but since mind and body are really distinct from one another, no body is a mind, therefore no body can think. 
I utterly fail to see what you are able to deny here. Do you deny that a clear understanding of one thing without the other suffices for the recognition of a real distinction between them? If you do, then give us a sure sign of a real distinction, for I can confess that none can be given. What will you say? Are those things really distinct if each can exist without the other? But again, I ask how you can know that one thing can exist without the other. For if it is to be a real sign of distinction, then this ought to be known. Perhaps you will say this is obtained from the senses, since you see, touch, and so on. The one thing, whilst the other is absent. But the trustworthiness of the senses is less certain than of the understanding. And there are many ways in which it could happen that the one and the same thing appears in several forms, or in several places, or in several different ways and thus could be taken to be two things. And finally, if you recall what was said regarding the wax at the end of the second meditation, you will notice that, properly speaking, not even bodies themselves are perceived by the senses, but by the understanding alone. So that sensing one thing without some other thing is merely a matter of having an idea of one thing, and understanding this is not the same idea as of the other thing. However, the sole basis for such an understanding is that one thing is perceived without the other thing. Nor can this understanding be certain unless the idea of each is clear and distinct. Thus, in order for it to be certain, this sign of a real distinction ought to be reduced to my own. But if there are those who deny there are such distinct ideas of mind and body, all I could do is to ask them to give sufficient attention to what is contained in the second meditation and to be cognizant of the fact that the opinion they entertained, if they chance do entertain it, namely the parts of the brain make a combined effort to form thoughts, arose not from any positive argument, but merely from the fact that they have never had the experience of a lacking body, and not infrequently they have been impeded by the body in their operations. It is just as if a person were ought to have been shackled in leg irons from infancy, he would think the leg irons were part of his body and that he needs them in order to walk. So, Descartes replied then is a sort of reiteration of what he says in meditation too, and that also he pops up the whole point about meditation six and what does meditation six gonna lead us into is exactly how the mind and body are joined together now you say well how is this going to be necessary to show how both of them are joined in together in the first place because Descartes at this point has separated them both out as two distinct objects from each other hence why he goes on about real distinction and so we have the mind on the one hand and the body on the other, and he's not really clearly said how the two are related or how the two are combined. And the posh problem for that, of course, is Descartes' mind-body dualism. Does Descartes manage to get over that problem of dualism or not? And Meditation 6 is where he gives his answer to all that and tries to get around that as a problem. How can you exist ultimately as a sort of head in a jar? How do you get around that as a problem? And then he also gives that summary of meditation too, and to say, well, on the one hand, we can clearly identify and understand the material world, but if we try to do that from the senses, of course, that leads us into error. How do we understand the world is through our mind, and therefore... We can say that really it's the mind that's in control of the body and what the body does. And hence why he sees the body side of things as like shackles, because ultimately the mind's something that's pure and, and has a relation into reason. And so our very rational capabilities are going to be hindered by our whole attachment to the body in the first place like hunger for instance if we become hungry therefore we can't think properly oh what a hindrance Descartes would say and so that concludes the discussion of meditation 2 so we have then meditation 2 then coming out of meditation 1 the establishment of the cogito or thinking thing and of course the wax example
and also a little fantastic wee discussion of Marin Mersan's criticism of Descartes needing to think about the body as a thinking thing and the importance of the body itself and then Descartes sort of doubling down in his reply upon the emphasis of the mind sort of the control center of everything many thanks for listening to the episode feel free to check out my patreon at patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy feel free to drop me a wee email at my address dissecting philosophy at gmail.com and i can also be found on twitter at i am a rubber man many thanks for listening and i'll hope you'll join me next time <laughs>